Hey, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and you're listening to The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... You could not do what film and TV production did for theater because it involves a thousand people each night in the same room sitting with each other, breathing on each other. And unlike, for example, the restaurant industry, there is no takeout version of theater. Lee Seymour and the business of Broadway. Today's episode is about Broadway, but I promise that you don't actually have to know anything about Broadway to enjoy the episode. I myself am nothing close to an expert. I'll be kind of learning right alongside with you. And that's also why I spent part of the episode getting a very helpful and a very interesting primer on the business of Broadway from our guest. And our guest is the perfect person to give this primer. Lee Seymour is a producer of the Broadway show The Inheritance, which just won the Tony Award for Best Play and which was nearly finishing up its run when Broadway was shut down in March of 2020. But Lee also writes about Broadway, its economic and its social issues, as a journalist for Forbes, and he's not afraid to cover his own industry critically. I wanted to speak with Lee because I've had this theory ever since the pandemic started that only when Broadway has finally recovered will we know for sure that the overall economy has also recovered. And I have to admit that this is a little bit of a half-baked theory on my part. But what I mean is simply this. Watching a show on Broadway means you got to be inside a crowded theater with hundreds of other people for three consecutive hours with everybody's breath and their droplets just circulating all around you. You need to be comfortable with all that to see a show. And a lot of people obviously will not be comfortable with that until the COVID threat is over or very nearly over. And Broadway, because it's obviously based in New York City, its recovery also partly depends on the recovery of dense cities themselves, and especially on the recovery of jobs in the bars and restaurants where so many performers and workers on Broadway take second jobs. And you need tourists. You need tourists to be comfortable traveling again. Tourists actually buy most of the tickets sold on Broadway. So if you look at all these parts of the economy that matter so much for Broadway, well, these are some of the economic sectors that were most directly damaged by the pandemic because they involve proximity to other people. So when Broadway does fully recover, if it fully recovers, there is a chance that all these other parts of the economy, which have been lagging so much, will also have recovered. So anyway, that's the theory. And Lee and I discuss it in our chat, including some ways that it may not hold. Plus, there's a technology angle that I had not really considered before I spoke with Lee. A quick word before we start the show. When we refer to Broadway for this episode, we are referring to the 41 theaters, which have more than 500 seats each and are located close to the Broadway section of Midtown Manhattan. Obviously, there's tons of other theaters, not just throughout the country, but in New York City itself, where you can see great performances. But that specifically is what we are referring to. And without further ado, my chat with journalist and Tony Award-winning producer, Lee Seymour. Here it is. Well, I guess there's one obvious place to start the conversation, though, which is congratulations, man. Thank <laughs> Tony you. Award winner. Tony Award winner, indeed, which still feels very surreal, but uh, it's not a bad thing to hear. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Thank you. 
So the play you won for, The Inheritance, it literally won Best Play. And you were a producer. That's awesome. What was it about? So The Inheritance is a two-part epic play about the generational impact and carrying forward of um, the AIDS epidemic and how that has impacted multiple generations of people and especially multiple generations of of gay men now that we are 30 years on from it and a diagnosis of HIV is no, no longer a death sentence. So what does that mean for your community to carry stories forward and if an entire generation of your storytellers and thought leaders died 30 years ago, where does that leave us? So it's a story about generations. It's a story about stories um, and sort of where we go when we are looking to find movement and closure and momentum forward after a huge loss. So in a way, it's also about a pandemic. And I think it's gotten even greater resonance with a lot of people since uh, COVID has happened because it's a vehicle and a story about finding um, hope after unfathomable despair. Yeah, that's a heavy message, but but also a timely and relevant message. Were you the favorites going in, by the way? Did you have a sense that like this was your year? Oh, it's such a good question, Cardiff. I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of speculation. And if you if you ask a lot of different pundits, I think there was the main horse race in hindsight was between our show, The Inheritance. Uh, and another play of which I'm, I'm very fond and actually was at one point considering joining the producing team of as well, um, called Slave Play, which is by Jeremy O'Harris, which kind of became, uh, I, I would say, and I say this as a producer of The Inheritance, Slave Play was absolutely the biggest and buzziest show of the year pre-pandemic, for sure. Um, you know, Jeremy's a huge personality and a, and a huge sort of force in the entertainment industry now. If you go back and look at other journalists and other folks in the industry who are writing about predictions and whatnot, a lot of them were predicting Slave Play. I, as a nominee for ethical reasons and just general, you know, wanting to remove any kind of bias in my coverage, I didn't write much about the Tonys. Well, you couldn't because you obviously had your own horse in that race. But anyways, congrats again. It's really fantastic. And I'd love to turn to some economics now. Why don't we start with this, Lee? Why don't you give us a sense of the overall economic scale of Broadway as an industry? Just kind of give us an overview. So if we're just talking Broadway, and remember, Broadway is only one small part of a almost trillion dollar sector of the U.S. economy of arts and culture. But Broadway itself brings in pre-pandemic, let's say. It brought in over $1 billion in direct sales, just pure tickets, um, each year. And the total economic impact to the state of New York is almost 15 billion. And that includes tertiary spending. So if tourists are coming in to see a Broadway show, they book a hotel, they have dinner at a restaurant. That's where that all goes. And that in turn supports almost 100,000 jobs in New York City. So that's tertiary jobs like that, but it's also direct employees, marketers, actors, directors, all of that goes into a company. And there's also hundreds of smaller off-Broadway and smaller theaters around the city that have an economic impact as well. In terms of demographics, 15 million attendees came to see Broadway in the last year before the pandemic. That is more than all 10 major New York and New Jersey sports team uh, attendees combined. That's how big of an impact we're looking at. And and most of the ticket sales, if I'm not mistaken, are people from outside of New York, right? It's, it's tourists, it's people coming into town. 
It is. Uh, and that's there's actually an important distinction here, which sometimes gets lost. So about 35%, so just let's say, let's call it a third. A third of Broadway ticket buyers are New York City locals. Two thirds then are going to be tourists. However, the designation of tourist can mean anyone from like New Jersey or India. That's a huge, huge group of people. Right. And whether because of travel restrictions or someone just not wanting to visit New York from, you know, the surrounding states like New Jersey or something like that, you can you can see the obvious impact that this would have on shows. But Lee, before we actually get to the shutdown of Broadway and the recent reopening, I first just kind of want to cover some basics about the way that the business of Broadway actually operates, like a kind of business of Broadway 101. Because, you know, it strikes me that a lot of people, for example, can name the film production companies, the studios like Paramount and Universal and Disney and 20th Century Fox and, and whatever. And I can also name like the streaming services that matter, TV channels, of course. But I actually could not name even a single production company that finances Broadway. In fact, I don't even know if that's an applicable idea to Broadway. Like, I just have no sense of how the financing of Broadway shows actually works. So let's start with that. Let's say, for example, that I'm a writer, a playwright, or maybe even just someone who has an idea for a Broadway show, but I don't have the money myself to put it on. Where do I start? Like, who do I turn to to actually finance my show? So I think you're actually asking two different questions, which is how do you connect talent to money and then where does the money actually come from? So for the second one, the the financial structure of the industry is multi-pronged. So you have like five Broadway theaters total are actually run by nonprofits. So there's a nonprofit companies, they have a, a season, they announce, you know, multiple shows per year and uh, they usually source that talent internally from their own literary departments. They have connections with agents. People submit plays. So a chunk of every year is just internally at a nonprofit organization. If you're talking about the commercial Broadway, you can think of it as a collection of startups. And this has been a whole discussion this year of is Broadway a unified whole as an industry or is it a collection of companies that are trying to function as an ecosystem? And I would argue that it's the latter. So anytime you see a Broadway show that's not at a nonprofit, and it's not at, importantly, that's not a Disney show, which have their own financing structure, those are all independent LLCs. They're all startups. So you have a single capital raise, and you raise the money from functionally angel investors. It's a separate LLC, and every show has it, and you hire everybody on show by show, work gig by work gig, and that is how that comes together. Okay, you, you've already said something quite intriguing there. Lee, which is that every single Broadway show is almost like its own entrepreneurial venture, which at least seems quite different from the film model where you go to a studio and you ask for the money, they give it to you or they don't. In the case of each Broadway show, an LLC is formed, you said, that stands for limited liability company. In this case, a company that is dedicated to this one thing, to launching a Broadway show and I guess my next question then is, who actually runs the LLC? Like, are there specialized, experienced producers who are known for doing this, who are like the big shots that you turn to, to start the LLC and then raise money from investors? Yes. And those would be mostly the producers. So every season, let's say every year, 
there's, let's call it, there's like 35 new shows that come to Broadway, right? Every show is an independent company, but what you find is that there are a lot of kind of repeat players in that ecosystem who are either putting the companies together themselves, or often what you find is somebody's the lead producer, and that's what we call the general partner of an LLC. They're the lead producer of one show, but then they sometimes co-produce, which is what I did for The Inheritance, they'll co-produce another show that's opening in the same season. So, you know, if there's a project that I really like, but I don't have the bandwidth to like put together a company around it and somebody's already built that, they've got the rights to it, but I want to help them out with that and I want a piece of the financial pie, I can approach them and say like, hey, do you want to outsource some of your capital raise to me? I'll raise a quarter of a million dollars for your show I'll be listed as a producer, but really all I'm doing is just raising money for your LLC. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's actually really helpful. So you've got these experienced lead producers who are known for starting these LLCs and taking a show from like that initial idea to then raising money. That's that's the capital raise that you mentioned. It means just raising money from investors. And then these Producers, these lead producers try to get the show placed in a Broadway theater. But how do the producers get connected to the playwrights in the first place? Or even to take it from the other direction again, how does the playwright find and pitch the producers? So if I'm a playwright, I probably wouldn't approach me, Lee Seymour, because I I've been a lead producer for some smaller shows off Broadway, but I've I've never been the steward of a $10 million venture in a Broadway theater, right? I might say to this playwright, hey, why don't you go talk to, I'll pull a couple of names out of the air. So so some seasoned lead producers are people like Tom Curtahy, Sonia Friedman, who happen to be two of the people who are running The Inheritance. In a former life, um, it would have been somebody like Scott Rudin, who is the producer who's now fully disgraced for being a, uh, you know, huge amounts of alleged workplace abuse. But he was he was probably the best example of somebody who had a huge network to fund new work and every year would want to bring at least one new play to Broadway. And the way you do that is, you know, if he read your script or saw a workshop of your play somewhere, he would say, I love this play. I'm going to option it, which means that he gets a certain amount of time basically where he has the exclusive right to be the producer of that show. And then he is the person who would call a theater owner and say, hey, I've got a show I want to bring into your theater next season. I'm raising the money for it right now. I'm putting together my capitalization. What does your calendar look like? Where can we put this in? And that's sort of how that process goes together. And then that show is its own company. Who specifically are the investors themselves that you or other producers would actually raise the money from? Well, there's no easy answer. It's a lot of different people. So it's almost always individuals rather than companies. And I think the one wrinkle there, which actually gets back to your question about film studios, is increasingly film studios and, and companies that have large catalogs of IP have been increasingly interested in developing those for stage. So you do have these film studios that are both funding internally their development costs, but even they will still outsource parts of these capital raises to co-producers independently. So if I'm one of those co-producers, I may go out to people who have invested in Broadway before. In order to invest in a Broadway show, you do have to be what's called an accredited investor, which means either you have a certain amount of assets yourself or a certain income 
um, threshold. Yeah, yeah. To put this in layman's terms, you have to be wealthy enough. You do. Because this is a risky investment yes. and it's therefore only available to people who essentially can afford to lose a chunk of their money on it. I mean, this is not like investing in a mutual fund in the stock market. This is a really risky investment. So there are these rules around the people who have to uh, have a certain amount of money in the first place to invest. You basically have to be rich enough. And Lee, in terms of actual dollars and cents, how much money do you have to raise to put on a Broadway play? So for for plays, which are tend to be less expensive than musicals to produce, you're raising less capital overall. So let's put it at the average play on Broadway costs $5 million, all told, to mount to cast, to launch as a venture. The average musical, somewhere between 12 and $15 million. So if you're putting together a show, usually a, a co-producer for a play will need to raise between $200,000 dollars to be considered a producer of the show. On a musical, it's anywhere from between 500,000 to a million, right? So you're portioning out pieces of the capital to other folks. If you're a lead producer who has a couple of really, really deep-pocketed investors, you don't need co-producers, right? Like, you can just do it yourself, and those investors will provide you your money, and that means that you get any potential profits. You don't have to divide them up with other producers. Most people don't have that kind of network, which is where the idea of co-producing and networks like that come into play to raise money for shows. Okay, so that's the business of Broadway, more or less. I mean, obviously, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot that we're not going to get to, like... Just how is it that Broadway theater owners actually choose which plays to show in their theaters? We also haven't talked about, you know, the actors and the musicians and costume designers and the directors and the stagehands, you know, the people who actually create what we end up seeing on stage, how they get paid, the unions that represent them and so on. So there is a lot more to it. And of course, these people that I just mentioned, they're the ones whose livelihoods were also devastated by Broadway shutting down. So let's turn to that now. Lee, why don't you take us back to March 2020? Do you remember the very day that Broadway closed down? Did you have a sense also of how bad things might get back then? I do. And I was leaving New York that day. I was driving up the coast me and my wife had preemptively left the city for, you know, health considerations and obviously feel incredibly lucky that we were able to have that kind of flexibility um, to be out of the city. So this is actually kind of to say that, yes, to a certain extent, nobody knew how bad this would get. I think there was a real actual disconnect and it became more and more profound as the weeks went on last spring between an acceptance of this will be worse than we thought and a resistance to the idea that we couldn't go back to normal as soon as we wanted um, in, in the Broadway industry specifically. But I did have a sense of there is no guarantee. And if there's no vaccine for this, there is no opening of the theaters. And on that, I was proved right, which we saw in London, which uh, tried to open their theaters last fall before there was a vaccine and shut them down almost instantly. I mean, it was a disaster. So... On March 12th, my wife and I were, were leaving the city, and I think at that point we were already seeing, um, I mean, I just, whew, um, sorry, this might get a little bit emotional. I. Uh, That's all right, I understand. Yeah, I mean, I just remember already seeing at that point, uh, you know, the pictures that were emerging of 
the refrigeration units outside of apartment buildings where they were just keeping people's bodies because the morgues were already full, right? Like it was already filling up. So, so it, it was a really profoundly weird experience to be driving up the coast. And, and at that point, I think New Rochelle, which is just new, north of New York City, was functionally under quarantine. And so we were driving past New Rochelle and there was, you know, roadblocks up, no, no coming in, no going out. And we were getting these news alerts on our phone and listening to the radio of, you know, this place is shut down, this thing is canceled. And then we got the news like two hours later, bro all of Broadway is shut down. Um, you know, it, it felt like the beginning of a zombie movie, you know, in a sense of, of trying to get out, uh, which it, it then continued to feel like for a long time. Did, did your colleagues, by the way, in Broadway, did they have a similar sense of what was happening or was there was there a certain amount of denial on their part about how long this would last, given how serious the potential repercussions would be for their careers and for their, you know, the, the, the shows that they were in and for their own friends and family and colleagues who were also in Broadway? There was a huge amount of denial. For the first few weeks, there was a really incredible communal coordinated effort on the part of everyone in the industry really trying to work together to extend um, health benefits on all levels with the producers, the unions, the theater owners, uh, the artists, everybody trying to do everything they could to insulate as many people as possible from what was clearly becoming a terrible situation. And that at some point sort of morphed into this insistence on the part of a few spokesbodies, uh, for lack of a better term, that this pandemic was, quote, only intermission, you know, that it was it was going to be done soon. Well, we're not going to have the Tonys this month because we're probably going to reopen next month. Oh, no, no, no. It's the next month. OK, no, no, no. We're pushing it back. And there was sort of this sense of weirdly kicking the can down the road until about last fall when I think it really sunk in that this was going to be permanent until a long-term thing until yeah. there were vaccines that's the biggest thing to remember about broadway right like film production had already restarted in a lot of parts of the country last fall you could not do what film and tv production did for theater because it involves a thousand people each night in the same room sitting with each other breathing on each other and unlike for example the restaurant industry there is no takeout version of theater and that's not to play short shrift to all of the theaters who did incredible work trying to pivot, and some of them really successfully, to digital streaming options. But it was so clear to me, and I think became clearer and clearer to other people, finally, that if there was no widespread inoculation against this, there was no way to gather safely in an indoor space for, you know, one to three hours uh, at any point. I kind of understand the resistance to accepting that, though, because it is it was... If you think back to that period, such a pessimistic scenario to tell this industry that relies for that relies entirely on people gathering inside and not just by the way, you know, when you have when you have um, nights where your play is showing, but also for rehearsing yeah. for, you know, actually preparing for the show itself. Like there's no there's no industry I can think of, really, that is more directly targeted by a pandemic, right, than something like theater. I'm, I'm leaving aside things like healthcare, obviously, sure. and, and, and you know, industries where you're sort of dealing directly with people who are sick. I'm talking in terms of like actually the day-to-day -day running of the business. There's no way around no. it. 
There's not. Right? So I, I, I sort of understand psychologically why there'd be a resistance, but it also goes against what I think by that point, you know, in the middle of last year, in the fall of last year, was sort of clear if you're able to take a rational perspective on this, which is that there's no way this is going to work until people can get vaccinated, not just the performers, but also the people who you're relying on to come in and sit in the seats. Like, there's no way to do Broadway without the vaccine, which is kind of why my own running theory on this is that Broadway is one of the few industries where once it's fully back, only then can you say that the pandemic is fully defeated. Sure. Because it'll probably be one of the last industries to fully recover because it is so intertwined with being inside, being comfortable sitting close to others, being in a theater, hopefully better ventilated than in the past, but still with, you know, like you said, 500, 1,000 other people, sometimes in very close proximity to each other and watching a play, right? Like for several hours, you're not going anywhere. So that that's kind of my running theory. So I, I sort of understand why there'd be a lot of denial. Um, but it, it was it's it's quite sad anyways, you know. It is. Uh, were, were people sort of hoping that they would get um, a certain amount of help either from the government or from philanthropical organizations or, you know, other sources. Uh, tell me how that process went throughout last year sure. and what actually did end up happening. Yeah. So so before that, I do just want to clarify, you know, I really, truly do not envy anyone who is in a leadership position of this industry uh, over the last 18 months. Uh, and my saying, well, it was so clear that this was going to be worse than we expected I didn't have any skin at the game at that point, right? So my show, The Inheritance, and again, I say, quote unquote, my show, I raised a, a, you know, a chunk of the percentage of that capital for that show. I wasn't leading it. I wasn't a general partner in the company. I wasn't an actor in it. I was not employed by the show. And even if I had been, that show, our show had closed. We were going to finish our run the weekend that everything shut down anyway. So we lost two or three performances, and that was going to be it for us anyway. So I had the extreme luxury and privilege of essentially being able to take a more distant, rational view of this because I wasn't in any way directly waiting on something to reopen for for me to have a job back, right? So I, I am in no way wanting to criticize or somehow judge in hindsight someone who was scrambling desperately and hoping to find any way of reopening their multi-million dollar venture that was employing hundreds of people for any amount of time last year, my frustration mostly was with the the disconnect I felt between what was clearly being experienced on the ground level uh, and the, the pain and the economic pain of people in the industry, and then the sort of public messaging of everything's fine, everything's fine, it's only an omission. Um, and this will tie into what you just asked me, where there was a, a moment where I, I if I had any hair, I would have pulled it out. <laughs> um, where one of the you pull out, you have a big beard. I, do, I you could pull. That I could pull my out beard out. Yeah. <laughs> where uh, uh, somebody, a spokesperson for the Broadway League, which is the trade organization, the major trade organization for the industry. That, that wait, wait, wait. What's a trade organization? And in this case, uh, who does this organization represent? The Broadway League's primary function is to be a a negotiating vehicle between producers, venue owners, and the 14 labor unions that operate on Broadway. So they're sort of the nexus of that, but they also became the kind of de facto PR house of the industry during the pandemic. And there was one point where, and this was last fall, this is way after it was clear that things were really bad. 
that one of the spokespeople for the Broadway League said on record when the um, Save Our Stages and then what became the Shuttered Venue Operating uh, Grants were, were going through Congress, which was to set aside funding to help entertainment venues, someone in the Broadway League said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, this is great, but like Broadway will be fine if we don't get this money. We're doing fine. You know, this is really, this is a really nice gesture, but Broadway is strong. We'll come back strong. And I just thought, I'm trying not to curse too much on this. Yeah, what are you, ta- what are you like, what are you talking about? What the hell are you talking about? And th- this person in particular, uh, you know, I, I know her salary and it's almost $600,000 a year. And I thought maybe you're fine, lady, but like the other people who have been employed by this industry, who've been out of work for almost a year at this point are not. We need this money. What the hell are you doing? So that's that's where primarily my frustration comes in. There's tons and tons of incredible work. What was being done to support everyone that is incredible. I felt that for months there was a mismatch between that work, the needs that needed to be addressed, and then the sort of like gonzo PR attempts to tell everyone that everything was fine when clearly the world was falling apart. So there was a huge amount of work done on the uh, in the private sector philanthropy front. Historic record amounts of money were raised through organizations like the Actors Fund, through private foundations, through Broadway Cares, uh, which are, and these are all different nonprofits that are relief funds and organizations that traditionally serve you know, hundreds and thousands of, of not just artists. The Actors Fund, for example, is not just for actors. It's for anyone in the entertainment industry. I mean, the work they did was genuinely, I know this is an overused word, but it was heroic. And um, oh, I'm going to get emotional again. It was, I mean, it really was the difference between life and death for a lot of people in the industry last year. And uh, and a lot of people didn't make it. You know, there were a lot of people who did die um, from this. And that is something that I think we're all still looking to find real closure on and how to mourn that. And there was also this ultimately unprecedented successful push on the part of a a number of different organizers and advocates who successfully lobbied and got the message across to congressional legislators that actually not just Broadway, but the arts and culture sector of the American economy is massive. It is a $920 billion chunk of our country, which is 4.3% of our total GDP That's larger than transportation, larger than agriculture, larger than construction. It's 5.2 million jobs, and the annual economic growth of the arts and culture sector outperforms the overall U.S. economy, um, or at least it has in in recent years, by about 0.4%. So it's, it's huge. And enormous kudos to um, the groups and the advocates and the legislators who really understood that without federal support, for which historically there's been very little precedent. We don't have an, a, a Department of Arts and Culture. We don't have a Minister of Culture, as they, they do, or a Secretary that they do in, in many other countries. There's been a, a historic disconnect between this huge part of our economy and what is actually supported in terms of federal subsidies. You know, there's very little subsidies for art, but we have giant agricultural subsidies, for example. They were able to get the message across, and therefore... Over last winter, ultimately, it was, I believe, between 15 and $16 billion were allocated through what's called this SVOG, S-V-O-G, this Shuttered Venue Operator Grants, that any qualifying theater 
or venue. So this includes cabarets, bars, you know, music venues. Uh, it's not just Broadway stages. It's not just theatrical places. Could apply for up to $10 million of funding to cover losses incurred by the pandemic. So that was hugely successful. And many, many shows that are trying to reopen now for just talking about theater on Broadway successfully applied for that money, and now they are able to reopen because of that. There are a number of them that if they hadn't gotten that money, they wouldn't be able to reopen. And it's not just about the reopening. It's about trying to keep all these people who work on these shows employed, that they can keep their jobs. And hopefully a lot of them have been able to stay employed because I imagine that just the sheer length of time that the Broadway shutdown lasted also meant that a lot of the actors and the dancers and you know the set designers and the stagehands and so on also just had to start looking for other work. And that so many people who worked on Broadway just had their career trajectories just completely changed for a lot of them, you know, possibly for, for the long term or, or even permanently. And for a lot of people, they were. We had a huge talent hemorrhage last year from the industry. Uh, I, I mean, this is anecdata for me, but I know a number of people who have left for the short to long to permanent term from the industry. A lot of people had to move out of New York, and that absolutely happened. You know, if you are a, for example, a stagehand or a carpenter, you know, that's a difficult skill set to transfer if the only work opportunity available to you is Zoom readings, right, for the year. Whereas if you're, you know, if, if you're an actor, it's there may be some other opportunities available to you in terms of coaching, remote lessons, which a lot of people did. And like I said, the film industry, TV industry had started booting up faster. So there was a real concerted effort on the part of a number of casting directors and TV producers to hire theater actors or quote unquote theater actors who, who traditionally don't do a lot of that because that was an employment opportunity. But yes, you're right. I mean, the, the sources of relief funding were essentially the Shutter Venue Grant uh, insurance payout, which not all shows and not all theaters receive. And there's plenty of public litigation now happening around who deserves what. And there's a, a large theater operator uh, in New York who did not get the payout they felt they deserved. And they're going back and forth. Their insurance provider now in public. And then also, uh, you know, some of the PPP loans and, and et cetera. Yeah, that's the Paycheck Protection Program that was part of the federal government's response yes. to the to the economic uh, catastrophe at the beginning of uh, 2020, you know, in the early phases of, of COVID. So around March, April 2020. Exactly. But those were loans that effectively you could get if you agreed to keep on staff uh, some of your employees so that they wouldn't lose their jobs and there, there would be no sort of breach between, you know, employer and worker. So, yeah. And so I, I was yeah, I was going to ask about that. Uh, I assume that some, you know, companies that employ people on Broadway also would have taken some of those. OK, so like there was this kind of multifaceted response. Um, obviously, a lot of people still did lose their jobs or perhaps went into, you know, film or, or TV, which was able to keep hiring. And of course, if you're a Broadway actor and you're facing being out of work and you get this other opportunity, it's only sensible that a lot of people would have would have taken that opportunity, yeah. you know. Um, but you, you brought up something else that I think is so important to discuss, Lee, which is that, you know, in, in big economic downturns, I, I think it's easiest for politicians or policymakers and legislators to allocate funding to industries where 
for lack of a better word, there's more tangible stuff going on, hmm. right? Like, you know, uh, construction workers, manufacturing workers, or the healthcare industry, right? Where it's sort of, you can draw a very direct connection between the money that's being allocated and people's welfare. And I, I really resist this, like, very exclusionary line of thinking because something like Broadway or film or, you know, the arts in general books, museums, things like that. It's true that, you know, allocating funding to these parts of the economy may not like directly save a physical life, but these are also the industries that are part of like what makes life worth living in the first place. You know, that once you take care of like your basic needs, there are sort of your psychological and your spiritual needs and things of that nature. And that's sort of where something like Broadway and those other industries come into play and also, by the way, like we really like them. Actually, a lot of us like watch watch Netflix during the pandemic mm-hmm. and we're excited to be able to go see theater and go back to museums once the pandemic uh, is finally behind us. And so you combine that aspect with the fact that like a lot of people are employed in these industries. And to me, it means that these industries also need to be considered as worthy of being saved in a big calamity um, or just being bolstered in a downturn as other industries. But I wanted to kind of get your your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I, I think you summed it up. And, and actually, historically, the United States at multiple levels of its ostensible support network has been hugely dismissive of, I think, what can problematically, and this is part of the issue, be described as the more intangible industries, right? Exactly what you described, the arts and culture. You know, what's the value of a a play? What's the value of a visit to a museum? And I think that's part of the issue is that it gets bifurcated like that because, yes, there is absolutely this spiritual nourishment that we all get, and I would argue we need, from arts and culture, And in many ways, I mean, there's any number of uh, economic studies that have been done that show the direct tie between arts seed funding and arts uh, as as local anchors in local economies and smaller regional economies to economic growth in those regions. But really, the, the shift has to be from, yes, well, do we really need this? And the answer is yes, and not just because it's spiritual nourishment. Shows are jobs. Museums are jobs. If you sign a recording contract with a studio, that's a legal document that is entitling you to compensation for your art and for your work. That's a job. So, like I said earlier, arts and culture writ large, it's 5.2 million jobs. And I think what actually the pandemic really did help, if there's a silver lining, is in the shifting of that conversation from arts as a luxury to arts as a labor force. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to ask about some of the ways that uh, a lot of Broadway performers and writers and artists tried to adapt during the pandemic. There were a lot of kind of performances that went virtual entirely so that you could just watch them online. A lot of them were sort of voice only rather than, you know, actually showing anything. I think some people also did things that were like sort of, you know, video only, but, you know, in a a stage without an audience, that kind of thing. And 
What was interesting about it was that uh, there were there were kind of mixed responses to these performances. Obviously, they were they were hampered by you know some severe constraints, which is why they were doing this in the first place. But on the one hand, I think it's just entirely admirable and wonderful in an attempt to try to get through a really difficult time and still to create something while uh, while you can in in whatever way you can during the pandemic. But I was speaking as part of my last job when I was at The Indicator with a young playwright who was also, by the way, very respectful of this attempt of some artists to do this, but who also told me that she herself could not quite bring herself to watch any of these performances because the pain, the hurt was too deep that Broadway was shut down, that watching people make this attempt to kind of pivot in this way and and to see quite clearly what was being lost uh, was just too painful for her. Um, but in any case, I'm kind of curious to know uh, what you think of some of the attempts to, to kind of adapt during the pandemic and, and the attempts of artists to try to keep themselves going however they could. Yeah, I think there's, it's a complex answer because it's not not all streaming or digital theater was created equal, not just in terms of subjective, quote unquote, quality, right? But just in terms of its actual purpose. So some of these pieces that either were developed last year or adapted last year for the small digital screen, some of them were fundraising events, right? Like everyone is stuck at home. If you want Meryl Streep to do a fundraising thing for you, where is she going to go? So like you could get these like incredible huge people to sort of sing a song from their living room and raise a bunch of money off of it, which is hugely amazing. That's very different from writing a play that was designed for the stage that then you put on Zoom, which is also very different from writing a play designed to be on Zoom from the start. So there are a lot of different experiments that happen. And I think that yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of Zoom burnout, right? Um, that I know plenty of people who just at a certain point thought this is really cool. Like I'm glad that people are doing work and glad people are are getting work and being paid for this, and I just can't watch more. I think there are also some incredible successful experiments that really paved the way for potentially new ways of thinking about the industry and thinking about IP. So, for example, there was a musical version of the Pixar movie Ratatouille. Yeah, I saw this. You wrote about this. That was one of the ones that was super successful, yes. right? Like it was it was made for TikTok, I believe. A musical made for TikTok. Well, so it, it sort of got crowdsourced almost, which is not quite the right word, but the closest I have from TikTok. So it was this sort of like genuinely grassroots thing where a bunch of people on TikTok kind of wrote snippets of songs for a fake musical that didn't exist. And then producers basically looked at this and said, you know, why don't we actually try to collate this all together? They got Disney's blessing and they turned it into uh, a sort of one one night only or, or a couple days only um, fundraising event. And this this actually that was in service of this organization I mentioned earlier, the Actors Fund. Uh, and it was their single biggest you know, fundraising event in history, I believe. It was big is it the was point. Huge. It, was, it was big is the it point. It was huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was successful in that it, it was this sort of new way of sourcing talent where a big issue with the theater industry and the pipeline is that so much of it is gatekept in any number of different ways. But a big part of that is that you tend to have like one or two writers at most on a show. And if you haven't gone through 
X prestigious development program or Y, you know, MFA program or whatever it is, it's really hard to get on the radar of producers or other collaborators who might want to take your your material forward and support you or, you know, agents or representation. And what the Ratatouille musical did for me from the outside was sort of set a template for producers and other folks who might have the resources and desire to cultivate new talent in the industry that didn't rely on, you know, who has the resources to pay for an MFA program to get to their showcase and kind of have those industry connections. You can just literally source it from from TikTok or Twitter, you know, whatever. It's the, the listen, I think that there's um, any number of terrible consequences to social media writ large, but one of the great things about it is that it has the potential to democratize access to rising talent. And that is what we saw yeah. last year a lot. The last thing I'll say on this is that's also very different from um, what the success we saw with uh, Hamilton on Disney Plus, which was a different situation that I think we're actually probably going to we are probably going to see a lot more of faster than any of these other experiments, which are going to take more time to come into their own and, and really need more development work to make a part a permanent part of the uh, the firmament here. The situation with Hamilton was they did a multi-camera professional capture of the show in the theater live with an audience and released that on a streaming platform. Basically, Hamilton, of course, was the musical that was a huge sensation, not just on Broadway, but its soundtrack was something that like everybody bought for their kids and stuff. So uh, most people know what Hamilton is. Um, but what you're referring to specifically is that they filmed a staged version of it and then released that on the Disney streaming platform. And that also made a ton of money. So do you think that like some of these ideas, some of these adaptations could actually transcend the pandemic itself, that they were experiments, adaptations that actually have led to something possibly new that could work out into the future? Yes, absolutely. I think jury's out on whether or not anybody is going to have a real long-term appetite to see plays staged on Zoom. But certainly looking at a hybrid model is an experimenting with what can you do online versus uh, in person, I think is there's plenty of fruitful territory there to dig into. If you're a producer and you're producing a new musical and it's on Broadway, you in your capital raise, when you're raising money to put the show together, you allocate a certain chunk of that uh, with the expectation that you will record a cast recording, that you're going to record the, the, um, the music of that and put it on an album, right? And so, as you just said, Hamilton did that. It was a huge, you know, that transcended the musical theater bubble and it became a huge cultural hit, right? The the soundtrack to it, the cast recording. What I think we are going to see more of and are already starting to see some is producers say, okay, not only are we going to set aside money for a cast recording, we are going to set aside money for a filmed version of this. Not necessarily to release to a streaming platform while we are running on Broadway. I think that producers have seen finally the value of having a professionally captured performance on film of your show uh, to use as a licensing tool, to use as a independent revenue generator on a streaming platform. I think that is absolutely going to be here to stay. You know, one thing that I, I think maybe people don't appreciate about 
Broadway and about putting some of these performances together is that it's really hard to reassemble all the people who were part of a Broadway show to get it up and running again after a long layoff because it's not just the performers and having to go through rehearsals again and everything else. It's that a show has like these dozens of other people behind the scenes that maybe don't often get a lot of credit, but like there's designers, there's technicians, there's the people who, you know, do the artwork to see what the set's going to look like, stuff like that. Like a lot of people who, you know, you don't ever, you're not ever made aware of and you have to like reassemble all of them too. And if there's literally dozens, sometimes maybe even hundreds of people working on a show, it's hard to put all that back together to restart it. It's not like the lights went off and you flipped the switch back on. And so the opening so far that's taken place uh, began last month, but I would imagine that this is going to take some time. So I guess my question to you is, uh, how's it going so far? Like if you were to if you were to put put this on a scale of like zero to 10, where 10 is like Broadway's fully back. We're obviously not at a 10 right now, but like what num- what numerical value like would you assess to it? And, and what? Uh, that's a good question. Like a four? Are we, are we even at a four, I mean, you know, are we even halfway back? You know, I hesitate to put one big number on all of it because I think you actually have to measure it in a few different ways, right? There's how many shows have actually reopened or opened, right? Like, where are we just with amount of content? And we're still reopening. So we have not even filled up all of the theaters that previously had tenants. So that's going to continue throughout the fall and into the winter. Um, But there are, I think it's now about 20 shows, almost 20 shows that have reopened in some capacity, either officially or they're in preview performances. So if you want to see a show on Broadway right now, you've got a huge array of musicals and plays to go see, as long as you're vaccinated and wear a mask inside, you can go see shows on Broadway right now. And you should. Uh, I've seen a number of them in the last week, and it's amazing. And 20, by the way, that's a Broadway. There's, I think, uh, unofficially like 41 uh, Broadway theaters or something. 41 theaters. So that's like almost halfway yeah, yeah, back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that will continue to fill out. There's another metric that we could look at of, you know, what's the actual consumer demand? And that's still really ramping up. I mean, the the... Delta variant wave that uh, we are still in, I think, has really freaked people out. Um, and it's it's tough. You know, even something like Hamilton, which was the... Hamilton's still exorbitantly expensive if you want to see it, but it's not nearly as expensive as it was before, and it's not sold out. You know, if you want to go see Hamilton uh, next week or the week after, you can. Like, there are tickets available in a way there weren't before the pandemic. So if even something like Hamilton is not fully sold out each show... That, to me, is a really strong indicator that there's a long way to go before everything is back up to full speed. So I think the short way of answering your question is, number-wise, I don't even know where to put it. I think that we actually have to completely reframe the way we define success in the industry because we can't define it by who's sold out in a given week because nobody's sold out. We can't reframe it as you know, who, who's, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, who's recouped, who's turned a profit, because nobody's really doing that right now. So we look at other indicators, how many people are getting their Broadway debuts, how many people are employed right now on Broadway, and all of that is ramping up. And that's all looking really good. 
Yeah, I, I'm gonna based on your answer, I'm gonna give it about a three and a half. Sure, uh, I... <laughs> because it's a. I'm gonna. So if, I'd say if we're halfway back in terms of shows reopening, but we don't actually know how many people are attending yeah. the shows right now, right? Like that date is not yet available. If I'm, if I'm yes, correct. and that right. Go for okay, it. Okay, cool. And that pisses you off, right? Absolutely. So we don't actually know, but the sense of it is not at these these shows that used to sell out in the pre-pandemic times are not yet selling yeah. out. So yeah, I'm going to give it a three to four, something like that. So you were expressing some frustration there, though, about the fact that we don't actually have the data, right? Is there is there a good reason for why we don't have the data or what, what's no. going on there? No, <laughs> there's not a good reason. <laughs> is it that Broadway just doesn't want to release it? Like, is this a this is a problem with the trade yes, group again? Is that what's it going is. On? I mean, this, this sort of gets back to what I was trying to articulate earlier, which is there's... Um, Broadway's a, in some ways, it's a big industry. It's a, f- a total economic impact of just Broadway alone is about $15 billion uh, pre, pre-pandemic each year. And in some ways, it's really small. Like you said, there's 41 theaters. It's 14 labor unions. Um, you know, three, three companies own over half of the real estate, just the three of them. So I think there's a lot more room for for ego to play an influential role here. And I think there's... Whose ego specifically? Like the people who put on the shows? The, the I mean... The, is it the producers? Is it the people who are not making as much money as they'd like to? Is it a is it an advertising thing? Like they don't want to say not enough people are coming back to Broadway because they're afraid that that'll convey yeah. a, a bad I, message or what's going I, on? I mean, look, I, I'm not currently a producer on any project, so I can't speak to what those teams are having internally. My understanding from talking with a number of producers is that sales are lower than people want, but slowly ramping up. I think over the winter, we're going to have a, a much stronger curve. Um, but yeah, there's there's this, again, as you said earlier, a kind of understandable desire to not have low sales figures out there because it it hurts to see, you know, if you're a producer, it, it always hurts to see, you know, that your show's not selling as well as you might want it to. And sure, maybe there's a concern about, oh God, is Broadway really back? Oh no, it's not. But here's the thing. Nobody who goes to see Broadway shows reads the like the weekly trade numbers of who's selling what, right? Like that's that's for industry purposes. Um really 99% of the people who look at the grosses numbers, which traditionally have been released by the shows and then through the trade organization, the Broadway League, weekly, those are almost exclusively read by people in the industry. And yes, there's a lot of cattiness and kind of sniping and like, ooh, what does this indicate? But I don't believe there's any real effect on the larger narrative of Broadway if those numbers were public. The effect that it does have of not releasing them is that you get more gossipy and kind of, uh, you know, gossip-mongering journalists trying to suss out and write rumors-based pieces now about, like, why aren't these shows reporting numbers? Who's really struggling? Who's, like, lying, basically, about how well they're doing? And I think that's actually pretty, you know, destructive in its own way. But then also you've got this issue where Broadway's grosses, which are released weekly or were pre-pandemic, were one of a, a relatively small number of data sets that... Uh, economists and policymakers were using to track the scope of the pandemic in as close to real time as possible. Because, you know, the jobs numbers only come out once a month. Broadway's numbers come out four times a month, and they can be a proxy for things like the tourism industry, like 
the restaurant industry, like the hospitality industry. Yeah, you got to have good data so you know what's going on. You know, what the hell? Like, you got to have good yeah, data. Yeah, and one of the first... <laughs> this is ridiculous. I mean, a, a small example I'll give you. One of the first signs that we had that the pandemic was really having a huge effect in a worse way than... This goes back to the point that maybe some people wanted to believe was with the numbers released by The Lion King, which is Disney's huge flagship. It's an incredible show. It's been running for over 20 years. Consistently one of the highest grossing shows ever on Broadway. It's like an eight, probably nine billion dollar property at this point globally. Um, Their grosses in the weeks before the industry shut down were plummeting because... And, uh, and I did get this confirmed from some folks at Disney. This isn't just conjecture. Um, because of travel restrictions and fear from tourists of coming to the United States. So that was an advance indicator for us and for economists and for policymakers that this thing was becoming uh, a real, not just emotional fear, but a real economic peril. Um, and we only really got a sense of that because of the real time, functionally, grosses that Broadway was releasing. So now we don't have access to that data. That's annoying for industry folks like myself who want to write about it accurately. But it's also just boneheaded, frankly, when it comes to the larger picture of how do we have a sense of how well we're recovering? Do Does the industry need more relief this winter? You know, where actually are we? We're sort of operating in the dark right now. and um, And I worry that that's going to backfire in a bad way to just protect a couple of people's egos who don't want to see low numbers for their shows. Yeah. And Lee, in, in closing, I have a, I have just two final questions. Um, you know, th- this is an economics podcast, but you very kindly shared some of the ways that you've been personally affected by all this as somebody who has who's participated in Broadway and clearly loves it. And you mentioned that you had lost some people that you knew in the industry um, to COVID. And I'm, I'm so sorry, first of all, for your loss. Uh, and second, I wanted to just invite you to share one of their stories, if you like. Sure. So, I mean, so m- my connection to various people who died during COVID is, you know, these are not people who I n- knew super well, but they were really important both to the industry and then in, in a particular case, uh, to me, my involvement in the inheritance. So, I mean, the person who comes to mind is, uh, most is Terrence McNally, um, who is, you know, one of the most lauded playwrights of all time um, and a real leader, especially in terms of uh, writing and telling stories um, uh, about gay men and and especially, you know, from, from the AIDS crisis onward to today, who really kind of set the stage for a play like The Inheritance to be possible, and who also happens to have been married to our lead producer, uh, Tom Curtihy, who's a really good friend of mine. So I only met Terrence once, but he loomed so large and so benevolently over both The Inheritance itself and then also the industry that when he died very early on in the pandemic, that that really, I think... Not just for me, but that brought it home for a lot of people who who maybe hadn't had an understanding of how devastating this would be. To read that Terrence had died was, um, I think that was a, a really uh, sort of awful wake up to what was actually happening. Yeah. And, and as you observe the reopening of Broadway as somebody who has participated in Broadway, clearly loves... Broadway and what it's capable of, and also as somebody who chronicles what happens on Broadway as a writer, what do you hope to see 
for the industry, you know, in terms of what changes it can make, but also in terms of its own sort of economic recovery and success in the future? I, I hope first and foremost that um, everyone who had a job pre-pandemic is able to um, be rehired for that job. And that means that any show that was trying to make it work before the pandemic gets a second shot at coming back and reopening and, and trying to make it work there. I hope economically that every show sells out and that everyone in the world comes to see every Broadway show. <laughs> um, and I and I hope deeply for a continued focus and full court press on the part of journalists and activists and just members of the industry to push for more transparency, to push for more accountability um, when it comes to how decisions are made, how power is brokered, and who gets a seat at what table as we are coming out of this. Lee Seymour, thank you so much. Thank you, Cardiff. Really appreciate being here. Thank you. And that's our show for this week. You can find links to Lee's writing in Forbes in the show notes for this episode. And we're also going to post there a link to the website for The Inheritance, the play for which he was a producer. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. And if all the world's a stage, Amy is far from a mere player in it. She's the headliner. She's the reason you buy the ticket. I I don't know where else to go with this analogy, but thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks also to Adrian Lilly, our excellent sound engineer, and to Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio for this beautiful theme music. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. That really is crucial for helping people find out about the show. And that's what makes it so that we can keep on producing the show. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. We really do love hearing from you. And that's it. Now my charms are all overthrown. But only until next week, same time, same place. We'll see you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.